0: James chapter 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This
1: is the word of the Lord. If you have been here earlier in the year, you may remember that at the start of Ordinary Time, we began a series on the book of Galatians. And that series was six weeks. We looked at Galatians week by week, chapter by chapter. And that series was emphasizing a number of things. Specifically, the grand theme was the fear of man versus fearing God, and understanding the nature of justification by faith. And the word justification is simply a large word that means the way by which you are approved of by God. How do I come as a sinner to God and then enter into a state of favor, being transformed from that state of sin to that state of life? So, The book of Galatians, we saw, describes a principle of the Christian faith that is summed up in the Reformation doctrine of faith alone, or sola fide, as the Reformers called it in Latin. That means by faith alone. And one of the things that I want to do through this series um, is actually examine how James is not divorced from Paul. James and Paul are not speaking against each other, and we're going to see that by reading closely along with the text. Now, why are we doing this series? It's actually not my invention, but in the providence of God, the lectionary that we follow, the schedule of readings that we follow, happens to have taken us through Galatians and now is taking us through James. So it's, it's kind of in, in God's sovereign providence that all of these things have have happened. If you're not aware, the, the, the worldwide uh, Reformed Church is celebrating 500 years of Reformation. It is now 2017, and we remember the, uh, the founding of or the start of the Reformation with Martin Luther's nailing of the, the 95 Thesis on the door of Wittenberg Cathedral on, uh, I believe it was October 31st, 1517. And so the doctrines of grace, which began to be uh, re-emergent through that, have transformed the world. The greatest progress in evangelism and missions has come after the Reformation, and God is restoring his church worldwide, and incidentally, parts of the Reformation have flooded back into the other branches of the church. It, It has been very successful, though it is still at work, however... One error began to creep in In after the Reformation. It was not part of an error that the Reformers held, but it was an error that slowly crept in. Whenever Satan is confronted in one way, he wants to go around the other way. And that error is that faith can be divorced from works. And hearing the phrase sola fide, by faith alone, we have reinterpreted what faith means, and therefore we have transformed it into something that the writers of scriptures never intended. So that is kind of just at the onset of our time in James. That is what I want to show. My whole purpose in reading James, or or my whole desire as we are reading James, because of the schedule of readings we follow, is to demonstrate that James is in harmony with the rest of scripture. And that by reading James closely, we actually get a, a better picture of what it means to cooperate with the grace of God. So uh, if you, if you want to think of it like this, sola fide is by faith alone. And I believe what James is saying is yes, amen, and that faith is never alone. So that's just what I want to I set the tone for our time in the book of James as we're going to see how James demonstrates what it looks like for faith to be exercised or faith to be put into practice. So I want to look at five elements today. First, I want to just give a summary of what James's letter seeks to do. We're going to look at his letter and his greeting as informing something about the church and uh, its nature and who she is in in her person. Uh, Then I want to look at James's call to have a particular type of perspective during trials or in the midst of trials. I wanna look at wisdom from God, asking for it and asking for it in faith. And very quickly, we're gonna see as we begin to look at each section that all of these things have to be done in faith. And that's James's entire point. And then I wanna look at the economy of the kingdom. By economy, I mean, how do we measure or understand wealth in the kingdom of God? And what do we mean when we talk about wealth? Is it material wealth or is it something much more important? And then finally, his call and exhortation to perseverance uh, in in the midst of temptation. And, and right at the start, I want to say that trials, temptations, and testings ought to be considered to be one and the same. Other translations other than the ESV bring this out a little bit more clearly. But when, when James is talking about trials he's not just talking about the sort of trials that are external opposition of other men persecuting you for the sake of the gospel. He, he includes that along with other sort of temptations. And so just, just to, to remember that as we go along, because over and over again, James is, is talking about real susceptible dangers, and then he's giving warnings against those dangers. Those dangers are not just involved in external persecution, but also the persecution that arises from within. And we'll see what that means in just a few minutes. So the first thing I want to do is just say there is debate in the church as to which James wrote this letter. And I'm going to ignore that question entirely. That question does not actually change anything about the nature and character of this letter. Um, Unlike certain books where it's very helpful to understand the context of the author and the recipients, this letter is not written to a particular church and he's not addressing specific issues that he has experienced in a particular church. And so um, there is great room for disagreement as to who which James this was, whether it was James the brother of Jesus, James the son of Alphaeus, or, or another James, uh, James the son of, of Zebedee. Uh, it, it, it doesn't matter which James it was. That won't affect our reading. But just at the onset, we do know that this is an apostolic letter, as we're going to see here in a minute. I'm going to bring up a quote. But the the one thing I do want to emphasize is not who it was written by, but who it was written to. Uh, If you've sat under our teaching for a while, you'll, you'll know that we like to emphasize the problems that Paul addresses in his epistles. When we were in the time of Galatians, Paul was addressing the heresy of Judy, the Judaizers, that, that they were inflicting upon the church a particular error that was unique to the city of Galatia. Every city and every church had that susceptibility or danger, but Galatia had given into it. And so Paul then begins to address that problem with the Galatians. But it's interesting to note, this letter is what's called a general epistle. It's written to all of the church. And so, understanding that it's written to all of the church, I would just want to apply that immediately, is that God's word is for God's people. That is to say, this letter shows us an example of God's word. It wasn't just written to a particular city, and even though those letters are generally applicable, we know clearly that this was written to all the churches, and it might be easily understood that James is writing to us. We are a church not only separated from James by distance, but also by time, and yet, according to what our, t- our faith teaches us, as we just confessed in the creed, that we believe in one universal church. There is one group of people that God has called to himself to be a special treasured possession, and that is the church. By, by the blood of Christ, he has sanctified those individuals, and James is addressing them. So, This letter applies no matter what time, place, or culture uh, the readers find themselves in. One of the the things that I love about God's word is because it is timeless, it, it is always timely. That is to say, because it is an eternal word and it is applicable to all people, it applies in all cultures. Nothing about the challenges of 2017 are unique to the church of 2017. And God's word is able to address them. In the, in the places that they err with his ways. So James has a purpose, and James is writing to strengthen the people of God in a time of temptation and in a time of trials. And again, I, I just want to impress upon you, this sort of temptation is still at work, and the more you are unaware that it is at work for you, the more dangerous it is, because you are like a person in a war who is taking a nap in a trench, while bombs are going off all around you, you should be aware of the war. And that's what I think James is right. He's writing to a people who are engaged in a battle and in a struggle, not just against the world itself, but against an enemy, namely Satan, and against their flesh, which as we begin to work with James, we're going to see these are the exact same things that Paul also warns his readers about. So, as I mentioned in the preface, I just want to reiterate that at times in the Reformed Church, we have neglected to our deficit an importance or the right understanding of the book of James. Many Catholic apologists like to point out that in the preface to the general epistles, Martin Luther, in his translation of the Bible, included in one version only the words that James was an epistle of straw. And they like to bring up this fact and then discredit Luther as this terrible teacher, a a heretic, someone who's taken the church and and broken it up and was a thorn in the side of the body of Christ. And yet, they fail to remember that Martin Luther, after he put it in the first edition, he took it out. And he removed it completely. And then he went on to, as he was able to reconcile James and Paul in, in his mind and in his heart, he then began to extol the virtues of the book of James. So although we have been, as of the Reformed Church, we have been susceptible to neglecting James, we, do, we should not be. It is, it is not as if Reformed Christianity is incompatible with the book of James. This is a very strong uh, answer or anecdote that people uh, use in order to excuse their jettison, uh, jettisoning into Orthodoxy or Roman Catholicism. But I just want to state on the outset it is not necessary for a Reformed believer, someone who believes in the doctrines of grace, to dismiss James in any way. And in fact, I want to I want to give us a quote from John Gill. John Gill is a is a commentator who I deeply love. One of the things I appreciate about John Gill is, is how he uses all of the scriptures as he's uh, as he's interpreting the New Testament. I just want to read this quote from him. It's long, so bear with me. The objections against it, that is the book of James, are of no weight, which are taken from the seeming disagreement between the apostle Paul and the writer of this epistle concerning the doctrine of justification, that is how to be saved, and from his calling the law the perfect law of liberty. That's very important. As we get to chapter two, uh, James is going to use this phrase and we're going to hear the antinomian uh, thought patterns in our mind want to divorce the law of God from this new thing called the law of liberty. But James, along with Paul, actually calls them the same thing, the law of Christ, the law of liberty, the law of God, one and the same. So John Gill continues, "...and insisting so much on the doctrine of works, all which will be seen to be agreeable to the other parts of Scripture and easily reconciled with them, nor is there anything in, in it Unworthy of an apostle and an inspired reader. And if I may be so bold to say, it is my goal to do that in this series. It is to demonstrate a reading of James which reconciles his doctrine and demonstrates it as being in complete harmony with the rest of Scripture. Why? Because we tend to move back and forth from an emphasis on free grace and an emphasis on combining our effort with that grace, and we have this kind of pendulum swing, all the while God is demonstrating through his word that they're, they're not opposed. That faith and the exercise of faith in doing good works, they're not opposed in the least. And actually they go together, they are joined together. So hearing James in concert with the rest of scripture, we will find a beautiful harmony. It will be beautiful and sweet and wonderful because it is God's word and it's better than honey. So doing so, in attempting to reconcile God's word, I want to just give you a warning that as we are engaging in this process of trying to reconcile James and Paul, we must do so in the place of submission and subordinate ourselves and our doctrine to the word of God. That is to say, we must hear under the scriptures. One of my favorite things from knowing some of the old stories of the ARC is this, is this uh, title of a church. I've, I've mentioned this before. The name of their community, the name of their church, was Servants of the Word. And th- there is so much that is encapsulated in that name for a church that I love and appreciate, that they are uplifting or they are offering up or they presenting like a servant would bring something or a butler would bring something. They are serving up the word. That's what I hope to do. But we have to do it by listening under the scriptures. Not establishing ourselves as masters and then dissecting the word. But as, as, uh, as George, George Herbert said in his poem, The Holy Scriptures, that scripture is a cure-all that heals what it reveals. That is to say that James is going to speak to errors in our walk, and as we hear James in a posture of humility, we will recognize places in which we have not been participating with the grace of God. We have been waiting for God to do it. We have been hoping that God would deliver us, or we have been waiting around for grace to finally become maturity, all the while... James is encouraging us to let it flow down like water. He's he's encouraging us to understand that the activation of our faith is the fulfillment of our faith. That they're not opposed, but they go together. James addresses the church to whom he writes as those who have been engrafted in. So let's get into today's text. James is writing, he's writing a letter, he's a servant of God, and he writes specifically in verse 1 as he says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And this is helpful to remember the rest of scripture. He's referring to a historical event called the diaspora or the dispersion. God gave a commandment to his people, that if they did not follow the works of the law, if they did not complete the law, then they would be expelled out of the land just as he drove out the Canaanites. And we know from history that did happen. But one thing that's interesting by this is James is writing to Jewish and Gentile churches. He's giving a letter which has been disseminated throughout the the church, and he addresses them not as Jews and Gentiles, but he addresses them as the 12 tribes. Now, that's a very unique phrase because if you read the scriptures closely, by the time of Christ, there weren't any more 12 tribes. Many of the tribes were lost. Many of the tribes were split in two. And then some of them became Samaritans. And then some of them left the Jewish faith altogether. After the exile, when they come back from Babylon, it's not clear which tribe people belong to. And he addresses them as the 12 tribes. So this is intriguing. What do you mean by this, James? I would, I would posit that what James is saying is that the church is the logical extension of the people of God, and that through what God has done after the resurrection and ascension of Christ, these people have now been dispersed into the world, but it's been a grand undoing. It's a grand reversal of the former dispersions. The former dispersions were done because of exile. through the the sins of the people, they incurred the wrath of God, and they were spit out, they were vomited out of the land. But here, at this time of James's writing, he's addressing a church that hasn't been reveling in disobedience, but rather they've been celebrating the gospel and participating with it. And as we see from the book of Acts, and Jesus's statement in the Great Commission, this was the purpose all along. After Jesus is raised from the dead, he commissions his disciples to go into all the world. He wants them to invade the rest of the world, just as the Israelites had invaded the promised land. And so these aren't dispersed because of sin, these are dispersed because of God's redemptive plan. This is James's address to the people of God who are to be spreading the gospel throughout the world. James opens his letter with a general encouragement for all Christians. Verse 2 Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So at the onset, I just want to say strongly in the most clear terms that the prosperity gospel, which teaches either clearly or subtly that the Christian faith produces a, a life of no trouble, is a lie from Satan. Amen. And that lie from Satan is so pernicious and dangerous because as soon as you face a trial, you will try to reconcile it what you, with what you believe about the Christian faith, which is that there's no trouble for those who believe that God just protects them from everything, and then you will begin to doubt, well, am I really called by God? And you will despair, and that despair will turn into depression. That depression will sustain over time. You will stop assembling with the saints. You will stop reading your scriptures. You will walk away from Christ. Because you've bought into a false gospel. So at the onset, I just want to say, if you believe that coming to Christ is the cure for all of your problems, and that all circumstances will start going your way, every roll of the dice will work in your favor, then you have bought into heresy. The Christian walk is full of painful things. One of my favorite things is Father Wayne McNamara from Christ the King uh, Church. He was our, marital, our premarital counselor, Emily and I. And one of the things that the most pr- precious thing he said to us in all of the counseling sessions, it wasn't about money or marital love or, or raising children. It was this phrase alone. Every marriage goes through deep waters. And it might be easily said every Christian walk should and will go through deep waters. There will be times in which you face persecution externally or indeed even from the people of God. We remember the book of Galatians. Paul was opposing all of those who were opposing him in the gospel. It is never the case that the Christian walk is easy. Indeed, Christ and his apostles routinely warn people that they will face persecution and trial. Jesus said, unless you take up your cross, you are not worthy of me. You must take up your cross and follow me. Likewise, the other apostles said very similar things. Uh, Right before Paul goes up to the city of Jerusalem, he encourages the saints at Galatia and he says to them, through many pains and trials, we must enter the kingdom of God. There's an absolute tenacity in that statement. We absolutely have to make it. How do we make it? We make it despite what comes. So the circumstances which come to us as Christians ought to be understood in this perspective which James is commanding them to have. He says, instead of fearing the trials, according to James, they should celebrate them, and through that, they will gain steadfastness. So here's the promise, and we're going to begin to hear James speaking in promise and fulfillment language. Here's the promise, your trial is going to produce steadfastness. So what's the fulfillment? consider it joy. How do I fulfill the promise? Is by believing in the promise and then changing the way that I think about the trial. Let me just read it again. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Who produces the steadfastness? Not me. It is the one who is preserving me. The Holy Spirit who resides in me is producing steadfastness in me. But what do I have to do while I'm going through the trial? I have to consider it joy. My considering of it joy is not the thing which accomplishes the transformation, but rather the Holy Spirit who preserves me enables me to make it through the trial and I have to sit there and wait. Now that doesn't mean I don't try to get myself out of problems I've created. But but I I have to consider it joy. That's my job. It's not to weasel my way out of the thumb screws which are being put to me. They are my my job according to James is first to change the way that I believe or think about the trial. So through trials we are proved over and over again until we are refined as gold. This is what Paul also talks about in Romans, and I hope to do this. In case you're one who's curious, how do Paul and James speak together? As we go over the the doctrines which James is positing, I'm including on the slides for you references where you can go and read, and Paul says the exact same thing. Paul says in Romans 5 that they are to to rethink the way that their uh, trials are going, and then there's this chain of events which end in, in a purification it's it's like gold which is melted and then the dross floats to the top and then you scrape off the dross and then you let it cool and then you do it again and and that refining process how does it work it works because of great heat and great pressure which is applied to the liquid gold and that is how gold is purified over and over again this is what this is what we understand to be the purpose of trials is purification. So then James moves on to give a commandment in verse five that if they lack wisdom, they ought to ask. And he does this, and this is not a thing which is unique to one person, but is a generally applicable thing that, that applies to all Christians. If anyone lacks wisdom, shouldn't that that is the set of all people. I, just, I, I want you to consider yourself as being in that group the group which lacks wisdom, I'm gonna go ahead and say that I'm a part of that group. Now, that doesn't mean we, we discourage ourselves by claiming that God hasn't brought us to any form of maturity, but rather we sit, submit ourselves humbly to, to James's command. He says, if anyone lacks wisdom, and I would just posit that that is all of us, that we all lack wisdom. Paul said, if anyone thinks he is something, he does not know as he ought to know. Okay, so that doesn't mean we don't take pleasure in the maturity that God by his grace has wrought in us, but at the same time we press on. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, why? Who gives generously to all without approach? Do you hear the promise? God will give to you without reproach. What does that word without reproach means? It means without considering who you are. Remember when we heard Paul admonishing, not many of you were mighty, not many of you were noble. God gives to all without recognizing condition, or even the, the King James translates it a little bit better, without regard to the corruption. Like as in the, what I believe the King James is, is putting forth is that he gives to them despite their manifold sins, which they've committed. James discloses in this verse the heart and character of God, who loves his children and delights to give them good gifts. You who are fathers and mothers, think about what you do with your children when they ask you for something that isn't illicit or dangerous to them. Do you routinely want to withhold it? No, you don't. You love your children, and and Jesus tells the 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 people who ask him, this is exactly the same pattern of how God gives the Holy Spirit. If you who are evil give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father, who is good, give good gifts to those who ask of him? That's what James is saying. He's repeating that promise. The promise given through James or reiterated through James should encourage us to routinely ask our father for wisdom, both in particular matters, that is in circumstances, and in general. I believe James is, is not speaking to one or the other, but to both. Do you have a circumstance which you need wisdom to navigate? Ask God. Do you feel like you are living a life of folly and misdirection and apathy and, and, and without any sort of particular aim or vision? Then ask God. Both of those, whether it be a particular thing or a general lack of wisdom, James tells them to ask. And look how James connects faith and The work of asking. He then warns them against doubting the very promise which caused them to pray. Let's just go over verse 5 one more time. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God why? Because God is the one who generously gives. Verse 6 But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea. That is driven and tossed by the wind. One of the things I really appreciate about James is that he uses poetic language often that is taken from other parts of the scriptures. And one reads this, and and immediately the storm which Jesus calmed has to come to mind. Jesus did not rebuke the storm and then say, if it's God's will. Right? So just, I'm going to leave that there. That one can sit. Verse seven, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Now, to be clear, I am not seeking to dismiss the troubling concerns of Christians who pray for something and then do not see the answer in the manner that they pray for. Their job is not to answer why God has not answered that prayer in the way that they believe is according to his will, but their job is to simply persevere. Their job is to continue to ask. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea and driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Here we begin to see, although we saw it in, uh, in verse two and three, here we begin to see the whole pattern of James's entire letter. Is that there is something given to God, given from God, that is faith. Faith is produced in the hearers of God's promise or God's word, and then that faith is completed as they believe in that promise and then start to act accordingly. So faith ought to beget works. Now this is just to be clear, we're not adding our works to our faith in order to be justified. That's not what Paul, or excuse me, that's not what James is talking about. He's talking about how do we walk as Christians. Faith and works must necessarily be exercised together. One flows into the, into the next. Faith begets works. Faith is a grace given by God through which all other things must be received, both natural and spiritual. That is to say, I cannot come to God unless I believe that he is, right? And he is a rewarder of who? Those who seek him which sounds like work. Seek is not a passive verb. God's word is the thing which produces faith in the hearts of the hearers who hear that word. And so God's promise has just been uttered. Ask God for wisdom. Why? Because God is the one who gives generously. And then he says, but don't doubt. Don't use the promise to begin your prayer and then at the same time, forget the promise and ignore the promise and dismiss the promise while you're praying for the very thing you want. Therefore, the command to ask in faith, by that command, James means according to the promise that was just given. The faith or trust in God's promise to grant wisdom should result in the work of asking him. Does that make sense? The the promise, that is God's word, has been uttered to James's audience. If you lack wisdom, ask God because he gives generously. And then what does he say? Do not doubt. So take that promise, and then that promise becomes the motivation for the work. It is the energy, and it is the foundation of that work. So why do I ask God for wisdom? Because God gives generously. My act of asking God for wisdom must be rooted in an understanding of the nature and character of our good Father who loves to give. That is what James is talking about. Faith and works go together. So continuing, James warns his hearers of despairing of their low circumstances or boasting in their wealth. Verse 9, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Verse 11, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass and its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So remember in verse two, consider it a joy. Now he's saying, let the lowly brother exult and let the rich man be humiliated. Why? Why? because they ought to change the way that they're thinking about their condition and their life. Neither abundance or lack of possessions in this life matter when confronted with God's sovereign grant. See, grace is not a thing which can be earned. It must be received, and before it can be received, it first must be disposed. And that happens through the grace of God at work in the gospel. God disposes grace upon a saint, and that person, if he is in Christ, whether he is poor or rich, ought to reject their poverty or riches and consider what truly is valuable. Does this mean we stop working our jobs? No. Does this mean we give away all of our money? Maybe. Jesus did say that one time. If you're captivated by money, it would be terrible for you to go into hell clutching at your bank accounts. Nevertheless, we ought to use our wealth in a way That is in accord with these verses. We ought not to trust in riches. Paul warns those who trust in riches that they pierce themselves with many pains. That those who desire riches run into snares. You see, James is not speaking against the rest of the New Testament. He's speaking with it. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. James calls those who are rich to forsake trusting in riches and to consider the end of their life. This is very important, especially as a church with many young professionals or young people who are working. It is very easy to be seduced by growing bank accounts. And although we must be faithful with the things that God has called us to do and given, we must always do it remembering what that money is for. It has to be spent on the kingdom. Now part of that is giving it to your children at, at your death. But remember, you cannot take money with you. And, and, it, and I, I was listening, I was watching, some of you will be scandalized by this, you shouldn't be, but I was watching a biography of George Harrison who is my least favorite Beatle, Um. And, and one of the things that they brought out with Paul McCartney was on on the film, and he was saying one of the things that George, the reason George Harrison went into Eastern mysticism, is after a few successful tours and albums, he suddenly realized he hated money, and he just you know he didn't give it all away, but so he didn't really hate it the right way. But he he was he found it so empty and so boring. And Paul said that we all did. We. We found that money wasn't really fun. And that's why, if you're ever listening to the Beatles, I think the first half of the Beatles is good. And then they get into drugs and psychedelics and stuff gets weird quickly. So, um, but the, the, the point is that even the most powerful, best rock and rollers, when they get to the riches that they've pursued, find nothing there. It's like chasing... It's, I think it's why the Irish have the fable, you know, if you get to the end of the rainbow, there's a pot of gold. And the whole point is, rainbows, you can't get to the end of the rainbow. There's nothing there. There's no end to the rainbow. So James then praises those who are steadfast, telling them of the promise of God to those who persevere under temptation. Remember, we're, we're reading James in the pattern of promise and fulfillment, where God promises and he enables us to, to fulfill that promise. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Why? Why? Why is he to be considered blessed? Why should he seek to be blessed? For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Promise, reward. Blessed is he who perseveres under trial. Why? Because he will receive a crown of life. I, I think that is very appealing. When, when you use the word crown of life in the scriptures and you say, that's promised to me, that's very, very appealing. So, remembering James's warning just a few verses ago against faithless prayer in the light of God's promise to grant wisdom, we should read this as his instructions of how to fight temptation. Hopefully this is clicking for us. James says, if you lack wisdom, ask God why? Because God is the one who gives generously, therefore do not doubt. Right? He, he says, here's what you should do. The reason you should do that is because of this. And then while you're doing that, remember the promise. Remember the reason why you're doing it in the first place. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Wouldn't this contradict the very promise he just gave? God is the one who is tempting people, but if they pass the temptation that he is also meeting out, then he'll reward them with something. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings death. This progression is that I'm, I'm living my life. Something happens. I see something. Someone says something to me. I stumble upon something. I, I I find something and that meets an appetite which is in me. And that appetite which is in me then begins to grow. It is like a seed which is germinated. As soon as that seed germinates, it begins to set out roots. And when it is watered, it then uses the pressure and power of water to break apart the rock. That is what I think James is talking about here. He's, he's saying that that this temptation, which is something that I have an appetite for, Then if I allow it to grow, if I do not pluck it out by the root, it will take over and it will spread its rooty tentacles through everything that I am. James calls us, therefore, to understand that our temptations are real appetites for illicit and immoral pleasures that our old man desires. Remember Paul in Romans 17, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to Jesus Christ, right? That what, what Paul is saying, what James is saying, is that there is an old man, and that old man, though we are to consider him dead, Paul also says that we must crucify ourselves daily. I buffet my body, or I beat my body. I put it in subjection, lest after having preached to others, I would be found as unworthy. So, so what James is saying is, there is some appetite within myself, how is this corrective for us? Most of us, when we fight temptation today, especially those of us who have swam in more charismatic and Pentecostal circles, we think that the temptation is Satan's fault. And if only Satan would just stop doing that, we would finally get victory. And we do our, our spiritual warfare thing, which is sometimes an unhelpful category. We do this thing in which we pray against demons or we pray against, you know, sinful uh, doctrines. And but we have to recognize what James is saying. The problem isn't just Satan. The problem is my old man wants to come back to life. That I must crucify it every day. And that I must recognize that my sinful appetites, the ways in which I participate with temptation, is A, I do not consider my old man dead, B, I do not put him to death, and then C, I'm ignorant that I'm even susceptible to the temptation." That mostly is the first leg in which people fall into temptation is that you do not constantly recognize that you need to be close to the Lord in prayer and you walk around as if you are immune to temptation. Cheating on a test, that won't appeal to me. Pornography, I'm a saint, that doesn't appeal to me. Eating three cheeseburgers, now I, I, I actually really love cheeseburgers, but, and I, so categorically cheeseburgers are lawful, but the fifth cheeseburger is unlawful so there is grace and god and there's there's levity and and some people become food Catholics and uh food or or maybe a better that's unfair to our Catholic brothers maybe food like food nazis right have you ever heard of this phrase the soup nazi from seinfeld they 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 think that if you eat anything at all that is pleasuring or desirable or birthday cake that you're sinning in the midst of that. No, that's not the case. It's when I give myself over to just consuming and consuming. The point is that the things which I am tempted by are real temptations, and I really want them in my old man. And my call, my duty, my charge is to do the battle based upon the promise. The word of God becomes a sword, and then I utilize that sword in defeating the temptation. Right? I think this is what James is saying, although he doesn't come out and say it. If you read him over and over again, he does say it. Count it all joy, verse 2. Why? Verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Verse 5. If anyone lacks wisdom, why he should ask. Why? Because God gives generously. Therefore, we read verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfastness. Why is he blessed? Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. So verse 13, when I'm tempted, I shouldn't say this is God's will. I'm being tempted by God. He's the one who's doing this. It's God's fault. Or conversely, that old deluder, he's, my real problem is all the demons around me. Now, we teach and believe and, and practice the exorcism of demons. We believe that Jesus' ministry against evil spirits and the apostles who continue that should remain until this day. That's very clear from the New Testament. However, James doesn't say, go and get an exorcism. He doesn't say that the root of their temptation is based upon something that is outside of them but rather something that's inside of them. So what do I do? I have to take the sword and pierce my own heart. That is what James is saying. He's saying, let no one say, but each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. So what do I have to do? I have to hear James's warning of this snowball that is building momentum until it is a boulder is going to start. And unless I kill it, in the moment of temptation based upon the promise he just gave of a crown of life, unless I kill it then, it will become an unstoppable force. I must, at the very moment of temptation, recognize the danger that I'm in, that it is a susceptible danger, and in the moment when, by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit brings the promise to mind, I take hold of the promise, and I trust, I exercise my faith, and that exercising of faith becomes the work of defeating temptation. That is what I think James is teaching. And if you are hearing that, I believe that's what Paul teaches as well. So, if we are to gain any victory, we must recognize our susceptibility to temptation and remember God's promises. Why should you memorize verses of Scripture? To witness with others? Yes. To share with a brother in need? Yes but you should memorize scripture because it is the only way by which you will be sure to remember to pick up your sword in the moment when the, when the battle begins. That is what, the, what you have to war against sin and temptation by the promises of God. If you seek to defeat temptation in your own power, in your own strength, by your own will and resolve, instead of utilizing the grace of God in the moment, you will fail And this is why so many Christians are driven to despair over what we call besetting sins or sins of habit, sins of corruption, sins where they're not even fighting is because they are not laying hold of the use of scripture to bring the promise to the front of their mind. It works like this. Through the entrance of God's promise into my memory, I am delivered from the delusional deception of sin's mysterious appeal. Sin seems enticing, and yet our old man is a terrible reasoner. His thinking and reasoning capacities are horrific. They are twisted. They are wrong. And so the only way in which I'm delivered is by God's grace to become aware of the temptation, and then again by God's grace to use the word of God as the vehicle of his grace, to balance the scales. What happens if I do not remember God's promise in the temptation? The appeal of that sin, that illicit thing, is very, very high. And in my own power, the scale is totally tipped. What happens when I put God's word into into practice? When I bring it to mind, it balances the scales, and then it completely reverses them. Why? Why? Because engaging in pornography versus a crown of life that is eternal, that never fades, that I get to wear in the presence of Jesus forever, that tips the scales. That's what I believe James is teaching us. How do we exercise faith? We exercise it through our works, but those works are rooted to the promises of God. They're rooted in faith. So, in the moment of temptation, I should exercise faith in the promise of God by considering the enticement of temporary, earthly, death-introducing things versus eternal, unperishable, immortal treasures and pleasures and joy. So, let's pray. Father, we ask you to do this for us, that we would hear James's command to consider it joy and to ask you for wisdom, and to remember the promise of a crown of life, we ask that these things would become for us mighty ammunition in the middle of our fight against sin, in the middle of temptation or at the beginning of temptation. By your Holy Spirit, Father, we ask you that you would bring to mind these verses and that they would become for us the way in which we gain victory over our old man, that we gain victory over the enemy. Lord, we ask you that we would be able to recognize the promises that you've given to us and that that those promises would become the grounding of all of our effort, that we would not strive in our own power, but that we would work in faith of your promises. In Jesus' mighty and holy name, amen.